Hello, I am Charles Musgrove, host of the Answers That Count podcast. Thank you for joining and welcome back to the show. This is going to be another great show. We're going to have an economic update from our favorite professor, Joseph Calhoun, economic professor at FSU. Dr. Joe, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be with you. I tell you, there's so much excitement on campus. Classes started on Monday. We're just bursting at the scene with students. We got a record number of freshmen coming in. I've got a real heart for freshmen, so life is really great right now. Well, good. I want to get an update on that, but before we get started, please hit the subscribe button. You're going to want to subscribe to our channel. That helps get the word out, so we want to make sure that as many people can see this as possible. So thank you for doing your part. Hit the subscribe button. And also hit the, the bell for notifications so you'll be notified when we upload the next podcast. So, Professor Joe, at FSU, things are bustling. You've got new freshmen on campus. So, hey, is it uh, give us some good news to start off the show. So, are people now on campus? They don't have to do all of the virtual. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been walking around campus as much as I can. I'm trying to get out because it is so refreshing and exciting to see a normal level of students walking around. I mean, the, the line at Starbucks wraps around the building. The line, the line at Einstein Bagels is, is about 50 people long. Students are just crawling all over the place. This is the way we should look. And, uh, you know, you, I almost forgot what it should look like because it's been 18 months since we really had much of any activity on campus. So I've just had a big smile on my face the whole week. It's so exciting to have students back to have my colleagues back in the office and in the classroom. And so far, things are going really smoothly here. There's always a few bumps to get the semester started, uh, but we're really off to a great start here in Tallahassee. That, that, Joe, that is great news, and I, I love to hear that. And hopefully uh, the campuses across the U.S. are experiencing the same type of bustling of, of students on, on campus. So uh, what we're learning is we're going to have to live with this uh, COVID virus. So it's, uh, we've, we've got to get back to, I hate to say it, we've got to get back to normal. We've got to live life. We can't, we can't shelter. So, uh, glad to hear that and glad to see that you're part of the excitement at the FSU campus. Looking forward to football season as well. So that's a, that's some great news that we're starting the show off with today. So let's talk about the economy. You know, the economy is in the news. We're all, seeing what inflation does. So let's, um, you know, we've talked about inflation a lot. We started talking about this really, uh, put it on the top burner, the front burner back in in uh, January of this year. We kind of had an inkling that it would start to heat up and it certainly has. Yeah, we, we, we're seeing levels that we haven't seen in many, many years. And for some people that's a little frightening, but, you know, let's also be a little optimistic here you know, 5.4% is certainly not what we want. We want something closer to two on an annual basis. But in the grand scheme of things, it could be a lot worse. I mean, you know, we've, we've seen other countries in different historical periods have, you know, double digit inflation for those members of your audience who remember the late 1970s, we were at about 10% inflation. I mean, those are times where, you know, things really get terrible. So yeah, we don't like 5.4 and I'm not trying to sugarcoat that, but in the grand scheme of things, we've seen a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. So let's try and be as optimistic as possible. And there was a little bit of good news lately. The July 
monthly figures came in at a little lower rate than what the June figures did. So we're still seeing inflation, but the rate of the increase is actually coming down a little bit. Now it's only one month, so you can't get too excited about one month. It's not a trend, but there was a little bit of good news there. Yeah, you'd always you always take that over the the other side of that. You don't want to see it keep increasing at higher rates. So at least the increase was at a decreasing rate. So that that is good news. So if two percent is the target for the annual uh, inflation rate, wh- how do you see or when? I guess the first question is when do you see us possibly getting back to that? annualized rate of 2%? Well, that's a really tough question to answer because we have so many factors that are in play right now. You've got government spending, which is putting money into the economy. You've got the Federal Reserve with their monetary policy that continues to buy a high level of bonds and mortgage-backed securities, which is putting money into the economy. Uh, You've got a host of supply chain issues. Uh, You know, if you're trying to buy almost anything these days, it's not as easy as it was before the pandemic started. And it's everything from lumber prices tripling to bags of M&Ms. I mean, my mom lives in Northern Illinois. She goes to the grocery store and she couldn't even buy M&Ms. The whole candy aisle was cleared out. Wow. So, you know, just all kinds of things out there. You know, if anybody's tried to order an appliance lately, you know that sometimes you have to wait six months. So, so we've got so many factors that are in play, and it's going to take a while for all those to, to really kind of settle down and, and for the economy to really absorb those new changes. Of course, we're never sure what's going to happen with government policy, and I know we're going to get to it in a few minutes with the, with the new budget bill that was passed by the House. So that's going to be an ongoing issue to see how that evolves. We pretty much have clear direction from the Fed. But then, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with these supply chain issues. You know, when is Southeast Asia going to ramp back up to pre-pandemic levels so that we can get things much faster? And and how are those issues going to be resolved? There's a whole lot of uncertainty. So it's really impossible to say, hey, you know what, everybody just sit tight for three months and then we'll be back to normal. We just don't have that kind of predictive power. I totally agree with that. It's, It's probably safe to say that we're not going to see it get back to that rate in the next few months. No, absolutely not. I mean, my personal guess is going to be six to nine months before we start to to settle down a little bit. You know, if you think about a manufacturing facility, you just can't get back to normal in, in two months. You know, I don't care where your facility is, whether it's the United States or whether it's in China or Thailand. You know, you've been shut down for a while. You probably have to get a bunch of new workers because all your previous workers aren't always going to come back to you right. and just be able to go back to what they were doing before. You might have to retrain a bunch of people and, and get them some skills that they didn't have before. And, and then, you know, even if you do your part, well, the, the, it's called a supply chain on purpose, right? Because there's several other links. Right. There's a lot the of process. links to that in order to get from point A to point B. So even though one one link might be working perfectly well, if the other links aren't working, then you don't have a fully functioning supply chain. So, you know, we, we've got container issues, we've got shipping issues in terms of getting the goods from point A to point B. Um, uh, you know, I've heard some rumblings about the railroad industry is, is having some capacity issues as well. So once the, the stuff gets to the United States, you know, we got to ship it around. Right. So we've got a, a lot of different things that are going to have to get resolved before we can really say, hey, we're kind of back to normal. Yeah. W- you know, we've talked about uh, our favorite chairman, Chairman Powell, 
not that he's our favorite in, in, in historical terms, but he's our favorite that, that we're living with right now. So he was in the mm-hmm. news recently. So let's, Powell says Fed could start scaling back stimulus this year. And we've talked about before on how he, he has to be really nuanced in, in the language that, that he speaks about the economy. So, again, he's being very nuanced in, in this conversation, in this, uh, in this report, and uh, hinting that they're going to stop spending the money, as you mentioned before. And I guess as, uh, as really one of the last bullets in the gun is they may have to raise rates. Yeah, and, and this is also a part of Chairman Powell just trying to get the markets uh, to anticipate some things. You know, nobody likes surprises, but the financial markets really hate surprises. So Chairman Powell is trying to get them to start thinking about, hey, you know what, We're, you might see some policy changes so that when those policy changes actually do occur, it doesn't catch everybody off guard and it doesn't send any kind of panics through the financial markets. So he's, he's being very smart here in terms of laying the groundwork, trying to set some expectations so that when the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the group that actually sets that federal funds rates and, and then all the other interest rates follow, makes a, a policy change, he's not going to catch people off guard and rattle the markets. So it, it's a very nice move on his part. Right. He's kind of preparing the markets for that. And I guess one of the things you like to see is when when the chairman speaks and there's not a big move in the market, then the market already had baked in what he said. So that's really yeah. that's really what you want to see so that, as you said, the market is not caught off guard, that there's no surprises. So no, you don't want to have surprises that that comes out of the, the mouth of, of Chairman Powell, because that throws a lot of things in panic. Yeah. So basically what what you want the markets to essentially say after some big announcement is, yeah, we knew that was coming. No, right. no big deal. We, you know, we like you said, we've already baked it into our expectations. We're already acting as if that actually was announced because he gave us fair warning. It's when Chairman Powell or any other major policymaker comes out and surprises people and the markets say, I didn't know that was coming. And then you've got all kinds of panic happening. Right. So when is it, just so we can put it on our calendar, because I know a lot of people out there, they, they keep track of this. So when is the next uh, big meeting that Chairman Powell is going to have? So for those of you who are nerdy like me, you're going to put this on your calendar, September 21st and 22nd. So Tuesday afternoon is when the statement is released by the committee. And every major newspaper, every major news outlet, cable and everything else will be following this very carefully. So for those of you in the stock market, you're going to want to pay attention to those two dates, September 21st and 22nd. Uh, Whatever the announcement is, there's going to be a reaction. Hopefully it's not a violent reaction, but uh, that's when the next new information will come out from the Fed. Well, good. We'll talk about it. We'll have another show following following that meeting that they have in in late September. So let's go to the next headline. U.S. household income jumped in July as spending slowed. So I think the spending still increased, but it increased at a decreasing rate in in July. So um, income is continuing to go up. And this is very consistent with with the other numbers that we talked about, which, which is a good thing. So if inflation is taking off, Households absolutely want their incomes to take off in at least that same proportion, if not a little bit higher, because what we call the real 
rate, or the in this case, the purchasing power, the, the real spending means that uh, we've accounted for, we factored in inflation. So for example, if inflation was 5.4% and you had a raise of 2%, well, good for you, but you're actually falling behind right. because you're still 3.4% behind. So in real terms, worst case scenario, we want households to equal inflation so that their purchasing power isn't decreased. So this this was, again, relatively good news that, yes, inflation is taking off and household income needs to at least keep up with it so that they're not falling behind. So historically, though, it's been very difficult for household income to keep pace when, when inflation goes up like it's doing it this year. Is that true? Yeah, typ- typically inflation is going to run ahead because from a, just a very practical matter, employees usually get an annual review and an annual raise. Right. So, you know, you can anticipate inflation and say, okay, I think it's going to be 2% next year. So I need 2% plus some more. But typically, households are going to lag behind. So the way I I like to think about it is we're running around the track, and inflation is always a few steps ahead of me. Now, hopefully, it's only a few steps. Hopefully, inflation isn't a whole lap or two in front of me. Right. Uh, But almost always, the the, the household income is going to lag inflation a little bit. And we don't have a slide on this, but the the news is still coming out that although the the unemployment rate is, is improving, it's going down that there's still a lot of jobs, a lot of people in the in the look out there available to be hired. There's still a high demand for employment across the United States. Yeah, yeah. And just again, we, we've been talking about this for months and it really hasn't changed a whole lot. You know, three months ago when you and I were together, we talked about you drive up and down some of the major uh, commercial roads in, in Tallahassee or over there at the, the 30A studios. And almost everybody seems to have a help wanted sign out. That's pretty much still the case today. Right. That businesses are, are doing all kinds of things. They're yelling and screaming and saying, hey, come work for me and hiring bonuses and all kinds of things. I, I think you're going to see a pretty dramatic change uh, over the next month because the federal excessive increase in the unemployment benefits is going to expire. If you remember right. part of the stimulus package, they added a bunch of stuff that, that wasn't already there. So we're going to go back to quote normal levels of unemployment benefits. So that excess stuff is going to go away, which is then going to cause an incentive for people to go back to work and, and fill those jobs that the you know, businesses are advertising for right now. So I think September is going to be a big adjustment month. Yeah, I think so. And if you look at the next headline that we've got, this is this is something else that might, that may drive more people back to, to work is that the moratorium has now been, the Supreme Court has ruled once again and said, you can't do that. So the moratorium is over for the eviction. So before people were were allowed to not pay their their rent and they couldn't be evicted so that although that was good for those that were renting the landlords it was coming out of their pockets so as you've said so often it's a zero sum game there's not there's not two winners in this scenario there's a winner and there's a loser the winner was the renter the loser was the landlord yeah, because, you know, if you're a landlord, you're really stuck here. You've got people that you can't evict, but also people who aren't paying the rent. So your income dries up, but your expenses are still really high. You still have to pay the mortgage. You have, still have to pay whatever uh, electricity bills or whatever else was, was built into the rental contract. So your costs are exactly the same. 
your revenue goes to zero or some very small amount, and you really don't have any recourse. There's nothing you can do there. So from my point of view, that's really a property right issue. You know, right. who has the right to the home? Normally we say, well, the landlord has the right to the home. Well, during this moratorium, we essentially swapped that property right and we essentially gave it to the renter saying, well, it's really yours now. I mean, we're not legally going to change it, but in effect, we did by saying, well, you, you, you don't have to pay rent, but we also can't kick you out for not paying rent. So yeah. the house basically became the, the renter's house, not the landlord's house anymore. Yeah, it's uh, and we've talked about this where it's it's uh, unintended consequences where you've got government intervention in in the normal business practices, the normal markets. And the unintended consequence here is maybe the, you, you intended to help the renter to keep them in their house since they may have been unemployed. But it really it really it was a property seizure from from the government that basically took the the rights of that property away from the property owner. Yeah. Yeah. And and to my knowledge, there was no special program put together for landlords. You know, a lot of other businesses had some kind of government program, you know, uh, again, we don't call them a bailout because the the, the, the businesses didn't do anything wrong. And then we just gave them a bunch of money, but you know, all the different stimulus packages, you know, small business loans that were then turned into grants and forgiven. You know, none of that was directed uh, um, at the landlords. No. So they, again, they had no recourse. They they just had their income stream dried up and they really couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, I think some of the banks may have done that on their own where they, they extended a three or six month uh, deferral of the of the mortgage payments and put it on the back end of the mortgage. So it's not that it went away, but it gave those land landlords a break for a short period of time. But that went away. They still owe the money. So uh yeah, it's I'm glad that, that that's gonna correct itself. Uh and I think we're gonna see the ripple of that through the economy. I think that'll add to the incentive for people to get back to work. So you've got the un, the federal unemployment additional benefit going away, that three hundred dollars per week I believe it was, that goes away. And now you're going to have the the eviction moratorium uh, go away. So those are those are two big incentives that should push people back into the job market. Yep, and you've heard me say this many times. People respond to incentives in very predictable ways. So if you're sitting around going, "Wow, I'm either going to have to move or pay the rent, and my unemployment benefits are going to expire," you know what? Those are two very powerful incentives to go get a job. They are. And uh, I'm a believer in that fundamental principle in economics that incentives matter because it drives behavior. Yeah. Oh, it really does. It really does. I mean, and and as a social scientist, it drives behavior in very predictable ways. You know, I can tell you how people are going to respond even before they start responding with the right incentive structure. So let's look at the the last headline that we're going to have here is, uh, and I guess it'll be interesting to get your take on this on uh, the incentives related to what may happen if this bill does get passed. It's been pa- it's been passed by the the House Demo- the House led by the Democrats. So now it goes over to the Senate, and you know the Senate is in a virtual deadlock. So what's going to happen there if it does pass? I don't even know if if you know if I don't know. I don't know if those that are that have voted or that going to vote that they understand what's in this bill. So who knows what the incentives are for that? But it's a lot of money that's going to flood back into the markets. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a lot of money. And 
depends on your perspective. What's good and bad about that kind of spending is it's very directed by government officials. So government officials are saying, we're going to spend money here and here and not over there. Now, for some people, that's very appealing because they can say, well, we want to help that industry or we want to help that certain group of employers and directed government spending is a good thing. Other people say, well, you know what? We should really let individuals choose. We should let the market allocation process be the dominant factor here. We should just generically put money into the economy and let people spend it to where they want. Maybe we don't want that kind of industry propped up. Maybe we'd rather spend our money over here. Well, if you allow the market forces to do that, then the money will flow to where there is greatest need. Right. However, government spending says, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to say this is the industry that we're targeting. We're going to help this kind of company or th- these this group of companies. So it's just different uh, political and economic philosophies. But clearly what you have in this bill is some a lot of very directed spending towards certain groups. So what is your, um, I'm going to put you on the spot with this question. So um, what, as an economist, as somebody who's nerdy, they study the, the economy, the e- economics, what, without, without knowing how that money is being directed inside of this bill, if you didn't know that, if you just had the price tag, let's say there's a price tag of $3.5 trillion to this bill, what would the economist in you say? Is that going to be good for the economy or is that going to be, is that government intrusion and that's going to be bad? So what's the, I mean, there's so many aspects to that inflation, directing the spending to picking winners and losers. So what, what does the economist in you say? Well, it's really hard to say good or bad. And, and typically, I and other economists don't really think in those terms or use those terms in terms of good and bad. We, we think about trade-offs and choices and opportunity costs. So opportunity costs is what's, what did you have to give up in order to do that? So for example, let's suppose that uh, some of that bill was spent on industry A. And and I don't want to pick on one. So let's just be generic and call it industry A, a group of companies that are doing a similar kind of thing. Well, an economist is first of all going to say, well, what's the next best? What else could we have done? And let's call it a a million dollars. Just keep the math relatively simple here. So the government says in this bill, we're going to spend a million dollars on industry A. An economist is always going to say, well, okay, that's fine. You're going to do some good there. I mean, you can't completely waste a million dollars. You throw a million dollars anywhere, a little bit of benefit is going to happen. But the real big issue is where else could we have spent a million dollars and maybe done more good? In other words, on the margin, the additional benefit that we could have uh, given to group B might have been more than what we're going to give to group A. So again, the cost is the million dollars. The, the, the question is, how much benefit are you going to create? And maybe you could have created more benefit by redirecting that money to B as opposed to A. So an economist is always going to think about opportunity costs and the next best alternative. And then we're also going to think on the margin. Okay, an extra million dollars here might not do a whole lot of good. But an extra million dollars somewhere else might actually get all kinds of benefits. So we're, we're going to think about on the margin in terms of making decisions. Now, the unfortunate thing is 
politicians hardly ever think that way, right? The first rule of economics is to think about opportunity costs. The first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics, right? So uh, politicians rarely, rarely think about things on the margin. They rarely think about opportunity costs. They just see their pet project. They see what they think is a desirable thing, and they rarely think like an economist. So it, it makes for a, a frustrating conversation. Does the economist also look at, okay, if, if the government is going to spend the million dollars, where is that coming from? Because they, they have to take, if it's if they're going to spend it, then they have to get it from somewhere. Yes, and that's the other very important thing is, and I'm, I'm quoting uh, Professor, um, oh gosh, I totally forgot his name now, so excuse me for that, but a very famous professor once said that what's involved in government giving is government taking. So in order for the government to give a million dollars, it's got to take it from somewhere. So it either takes it from us today in the form of taxes, or it takes it from us in the future in the form of government debt. Right. So if I'm the government and I don't want to take it today, I go to the U.S. Treasury, I offer a, a bond, and I get the money today, and I enter into a legal agreement that I have to pay it back in 20 or 30 years. So then what do I do? Well, when the government bond comes due, then I've got to tax those people then. So I've got to take it. It's just a matter of do I take it now or do I take it later? And everybody needs to understand that there is no free anything from the government because the government has to take it from you now or you later before it can give it to somebody else. Or maybe it gives it back to you, but it's got to take it from you first. Joe, that is so well put. Tibor McCann, sorry. Sorry for the brain cramp there. Tibor McCann, who was uh, formerly at Chapman University, is famous for saying that. That is... uh... That is such good information that you, I mean, that just makes it so simple and it really puts it into, I think everyday person can understand that. And, um, you know, we're, I want to mention this one thing and, and uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into this in, in depth, but I know that we're reaching the budget or the, the deficit ceiling again. So there's going to have to, we're going to, our Congress we're going to have to raise it. Yeah, we're going to have to raise it. There's, there's no way around it. I mean, the Democrats and the Republicans can fight all they want. At the end of the day, they're going to have to raise it. There's no way that they can do what they want to do with this stimulus and with that budget bill by not raising the debt ceiling. So, you know, we can basically ignore their fighting because we know what the conclusion is going to be. They're right. going to raise it. So what is it going to be? 30? Is it 33 trillion? Is that what we're up to or approximately? Uh, you know, I, I actually, I forgot the exact number. That sounds about right. But, you know, hey, when you're spending 33 trillion, you know, if you're off by a few billion in the rounding, no big deal, right? Yeah. And we're about to spend 10% of that in this one bill. So it's right. Uh, right. Yeah. We're talking big uh, numbers it's, here. It's scary. Big numbers. Yeah. You used to, when you used to say a trillion, that was, uh, that was just kind of out, out there, crazy type numbers. Now it's, it's, uh, it's just part of the everyday vernacular when you're talking about bills and, and what the federal government has been spending in the last couple of years or 18 months. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit scary. I would like to come back to that for a future show because you know, the, we keep, saying we're kicking the can down the road and that can just gets bigger and bigger and we're looking at another raising of the of the debt ceiling and when does it end when does that ever start to reverse i think we've looked at a chart before the number of years that we've seen spending less 
than what we take in is is uh, few and far between. So yeah, very few and far between. I mean, it's almost like looking for a needle in a haystack in terms of looking for a year where the federal government spent less than it took in in revenue. Very hard to find those years. Yeah, it, it's um, it's a runaway train. It looks like so. Joe, we're going to end it there. So the good news is we've talked about it at the beginning of the show. School is back in. You're at FSU. There's a lot of people running around on campus. So the, a lot of excitement there. People are back in person uh, going to class. So that's a good thing to hear. Thank you so much for doing what you do on the FSU campus and for the Answers That Count podcast. Well, um, I love doing it and great to be with you today. Awesome. Tune in again for another exciting show of Answers That Count. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove. Have a great day. Have a blessed week. Peace.